Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and is made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Hello and welcome to our season finale of Taxpayer Talks. Signy die has occurred. Regular session is over and we are here to talk about regular session. Those who are not uh, in, in the know, they are actually actively right now starting a special session, which we'll touch on today. But we have invited uh, a, a couple friends to kind of discuss uh, our legislative session. I'm going to kind of go along and let you all introduce yourself. Jeremy, why don't you start? Howdy, Jeremy Kitchen, Executive Director at Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. Hello, everyone. Vance Ginn, um, President of Ginn Economic Consulting, also a senior policy policy analyst at the Texans Fiscal Responsibility. Do some work with some others, but those are the key things right now. Uh, hi, I'm Bill Peacock. I do some work for Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, obviously, and also Texas Scorecard and the Huffines Liberty Foundation and been around the Texas legislature for a long time. And Tim, you mentioned that they're right, in fact, just starting a, a special session on property taxes. It looks like they might have already finished it because I mean, they've already passed <laughs> the one big bill. The House is going to finish the other bill pretty soon. And so they're just going to sit around and wait and play blind man's bluff with each other, I think. Yeah, you know, we, we've heard they want to knock this out this week, you know, but, you know, rumors are usually true, but uh, we anticipate it's going to be a very short session, assuming that they can actually come to some sort of agreement, right? Uh, and so we we will see, hopefully we'll know in the next couple of days. Well, let's let's kind of break down the, the legislative session. So the way we're framing this is the good, the bad, and the ugly of the legislative session. And so we're going to start about, there were some good things. Of course, if y'all follow us on Twitter or anything, you, you constantly see us calling out, you know, obviously we had the lack of property tax relief. We had corporate welfare. We're, we have a lot of things we're going to talk about today, but let's start positively. What good happened this session? I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Jeremy. What are your thoughts on the good that happened this go round? Well, I'm going to kind of throw a wrench in the works right out the gate. And I would say the good was actually property tax relief, right? It was the narrative around property tax relief. I know that might sound different considering how we just talked about it, right? Uh, but you know, like for to, to Vance's credit, to Bill's credit, right? These are th these are issues that they've been working on, right? In different ways over the last, what, decade or more, right? And, um, you know, there's always been a fervor around it. The legislature has always addressed it, right, to some degree. But, you know, I can't, I don't know that I can think back to any of the, you know, five or six legislative sessions that I've watched and worked in whatever capacity and seen this much fervor from just general people, right? Taxpayers, individual taxpayers, people on social media, people that interact with us, right? That comment or reply to our sorts of thing. There, It's a growing fervor of people that are concerned about their, their uh, property tax burdens. And I don't know that I've ever heard this much fervor around it. And so even though, yes, they didn't get it across the finish line at the end of the legislative session, um, they have to do something. As you see, they've moved into a special session on it. And I think that only it only hopefully going forward, right, benefits the taxpayer and that it's just they've got to address this in some way. Now, obviously, you can caveat that with, you know, they're going to do the bare minimum. Uh, but I but I think it, it's, it at least makes me hopeful at the end of the day that we're we're talking more more about this issue. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes sense, Jeremy. Um, the problem is they didn't get anything done. Not yet anyway. But I do like that there is a movement in the a movement afoot for there to be more discussion about the need for property tax, not only relief, but elimination. Right. So we can talk about that. Um, you know, what I would say was was good. And um, I had to change up what my good was not too long ago. You know, my, I had tweeted about this. 
um, before the end, before Sonny die, that that the good part was that House Bill Five died. The corporate welfare, you know, property tax abatements. That was my good. Well, of course, that came back to life. That was resurrected somehow. We'll talk about more of that. I'm sure here in a little bit. Um, so the 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 good here, I think, is House Bill Twenty One Twenty Seven, which is this local preemption of regulations um, that can't exceed what the state has in regulations. Um, I. <laughs> I would like for the, and them to reduce regulations overall. Like I think the state is also regulating too much. But whenever you have these out of control blueberries in a sea of red in Texas or the places like Houston and Austin and, and, and others, put some limitations on what they can do for regulations. What I think what it does more than anything um, is allows for there to be certainty. Businesses, employers, risk takers hate uncertainty. And what I think this does then, it will create more certainty in the marketplace, allow for more economic opportunity for folks to start businesses and invest and hire workers, all the things that we want to see as part of the Texas model. And that's been a big part of the Texas model is sensible regulation. And I think statewide, we have had that. I think we, there's been too much, like I said a minute ago, um, there should be less than that. But generally speaking, there has been some sensible regulation, but not at the local level. I mean, you have the green energy agenda that's taking place in places like Houston. Um, you've got a lot of the COVID regulations that have been put in place that were put in place. So if we can allow for not allow them to do go as extreme as what they have in the past will be good for Texas at the end of the day. So I'll I'll say that House Bill 2127 was my good. Well I'm kind of like Vance in one sense and in, in, in the sense that we have to to some extent go outside the fiscal realm to find anything good about this legislative session. And, and we'll get to the, the, the ugly and bad parts about that in a little bit. But I, you know, I'm I'm with Vance on, on the bill about local preemption. I, you know, I'm a little concerned about how effective it's actually going to be. Uh, having talked to like James Quintero over at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, you know, he he said it's going to be a kind of wait and see kind of thing how how it all plays out because uh, you know one thing that that makes me have pause on that is, is uh, Charlie Guerin voted for this bill and for those probably most people don't hear who don't know who Charlie Guerin is but but he's a he's a member from from the Metroplex up there and and it's been a big champion of local government and the fact that he would vote for a bill that supposedly reigns in local government gives me some pause, right? But I know it was also as a priority for the speaker and his team over there. So may maybe this will actually do some good, and I'm looking forward to that. I think uh, along the lines that, that Jeremy uh, was talking about as well is, is that I, th I think conservatives actually shifted the, the conversation on property taxes this session, right? Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, for instance, when they first came out, they kept talking about, uh, you know, how they were going, you know, this property taxes were going to be the largest property tax cuts in, in Texas. And but they were doing that because they were obfuscating about what was new property tax relief and what was old property tax relief from 2019 and, and 21. And but they didn't differentiate between that at all. Well, by the time we got towards the end of session, they started making those distinctions. I mean, they're they're still calling their their bill the even in the special session, which uh, which is going to give about $12.3 billion in property tax relief. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, they're, they're still calling it a $16 billion bill and saying it's the largest property tax cut in history. But at least they're explaining the, the different parts of it, which they weren't before. And, and I think, you know, grassroots folks and groups like ours 
you know, had a big effect on that and made that happen. So I, I thought that was a good thing for a legislative session as well. Okay. It's always fun going last because all your thunder gets stolen, but uh, I, I will echo, right? I think big on the big side, I agree with both of y'all that, that the, the conversation shifted throughout the session, right? Where they, they started, but as, as many of our groups, right, were calling out the fuzzy math uh, and demanding more and, and really educating people about things like what is compression? We always go, what's compression? There's all this, you know, confusing language and just having people curious and the, uh, the ability to explain the difference, why compression is superior to homestead exemption and why appraisal caps are bad. I really feel as though a lot of folks really got a good education uh, through listening to the various groups who are focused on property tax reform. And I think that you saw the legislature react to that. And that was very, very uh, encouraging, you know, and to the point where like they were still fighting. And of course, they didn't get anything passed, but they immediately got called into a special session because Abbott values having uh, uh, property tax reform passed because they're all going to be in trouble if something is not done. Right. And so he called the special for compression only, right, which is significant because we have this back and forth on homestead exemption versus compression. But Abbott came out, you know, really strong and said, hey, listen, we're calling this for compression because uh, we've, we basically won the war as far as uh, what's the best form of property tax relief. And I think Abbott, you know, kind of sent that signal out that compression is and that our 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 message that it is has resonated not only to, to folks across Texas, but to the legislature as a whole. I would say a couple other good things, you know, although it's not always in our wheelhouse, uh, there's a lot of tax dollars that have to do with things, all, all the social issues, right? Like the the porn in schools and the gender modification and DEI and, and, and a lot of those things were, were passed. I don't want to get too in the weeds and all of that stuff, but I think we had some pretty big wins in the social realm uh, this go round, which um, you know, as a fiscal organization, we we typically you know focus on taxpayer dollars, but in this case, many tax dollars are going and influencing this. Whether you know doctors being trained that way, or higher education, or schools, uh, so tax dollars are being affected. I think that is another win, and I think kind of the last thing in in my head is uh, I really want to give praise to Representative uh, Brian Harrison. I think he was really really impressive as a freshman, uh, and that I'm uh, I'm really encouraged. Uh, because usually you have freshmen who don't say anything, but you know, he he said a few things on the floor, but he was very open about things like eliminating property taxes, right? Going on on major media and and unapologetically saying, hey, listen, this is an infringement on private property rights. We need to end these things. And he's been really courageous and really encouraging as kind of this new, uh, hopefully, wave of freshmen that are coming up. And I think more so than anybody else in his class. And so I hope to see more from him in coming sessions. Uh, but he was a breath of fresh air this session as well. Uh, well, let's let's pivot. You know, we, I, I'm sure we have a lot more bad and a lot more ugly to talk about. And so let's go ahead and kick it off with the bad. Jeremy, uh, why don't you get us started? What are your thoughts on the bad session? Well, unlike you, the good thing about going first is I get to have all the thunder, I guess. So uh, I, I think the easy and the low hanging fruit, uh, sadly, uh, for me, the bad was just the sheer amount of different corporate welfare legislation that made its way uh, through the 88th legislative process this session. Obviously, there's the easy House Bill 5 that we talked about ad agnosium on our, in, in various content that we produce. But even then, it's it, there's a whole bunch of kind of smaller uh, bills that also made their way through both the House and the Senate, right, where it would either extend existing programs or expand them, right, to, to have more things that qualify. Uh, something that one of the, the two bills that, that dealt with this died 
uh, dealing with film incentives, right? Uh, you know, trying to bring Hollywood into Texas. There's a lot of big money that was involved in there. One of the bills that we called out did die, but there was another one. I think it was authored by Craig Goldman, right? That that passed it, that expend, extended uh, basically who who would qualify for such things. And there's a portion of uh, it expends, I, I guess, the, the the film subsidy portion of that. And that's that's bad, right? Is that we're we're that's government continuing to pick winners over losers. Um, and and ultimately, and well, I know we're going to talk about the budget and expanding government. This is just another way, right, of giving getting government's tentacles, if you will, in everything. And there was a heck of a lot, probably more so either that, 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 I, um, that I remember in any other legislative session, um, just different types of corporate welfare, right, Make, made its way through the process. And I think it just sets a really bad trend that even Republican lawmakers, even conservatives, right, people that have primarily been more conservative in the past voted for some of this uh, sort of stuff. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it hopefully is not the start of a bad trend, but it looks like it. Yep. Um Man, this is tough to figure out. Okay, what's the bad and what's the ugly? <laughs> um, I okay. Let me just do this. So I'm gonna have three real quick about the bad. I'll make it quick, make it short though. I, I agree with you on Jeremy on um, all the corporate welfare was was totally bad. I almost want to count that as ugly, but I got some more stuff I want to wait for that. But I think this corporate welfare <clears throat> is a trend that we. I, I was hoping that maybe we had ended. But as we know, things like to come back up. All the rent seeking, um, you know, politicians have to win votes. James Buchanan and Public Choice Economics talked a lot about rent seeking and you've got to get those votes. And that's what this is about is those big ribbon cutting events and everything else that's going on and say, look at these movies we brought here. It's it's an annoyance. To me, it has no role for government at all. And that's not about preserving liberty. That's just about preserving people's, I guess, incumbency. <laughs> uh, it's not about winning votes. It's not about... Um, preserving liberty at all. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I also think that a bad part of this session was not passing universal school choice. Um, the closest that we really got was Senate Bill 8, which would have covered about 5.5 million kids across the state. It would have been the most expansive in the number of kids of any state, but it would not have included it was not universal, let's put it that way. It wasn't 100% share of all the kids that were available. And that's really what we need. I mean, there have now been seven states just over the last two years that have passed, <clears throat> excuse me, the past universal school choice. We're going to be falling behind. You know, and I think this is not the direction that Texas needs to go. Um, I, I think we've had some discussion before about public education and, you know, the government runs schools and not funding a system, but funding students and whether or not we should even have public education, you know, get rid of article seven altogether. But until we can do that, we have, we have a public school system in place and we need to do something about it. And, and the, and the answer is competition. The competition is, is the beautiful thing about so many other areas of our daily lives from what we're wearing to the books that we have behind us to maps and all this other stuff. This is through a lot of competition that's out there in the marketplace that provides better quality at a lower cost and that's what we should have in education as well and it's just yeah. i think it's sad huh oh i think it's sad that overall that that's what's going on here um with it with us not passing universal school choice and falling behind other states um and then you know, there were some other things that were going on this session where I also think we're, we're bad Whether you look at the, the corporate welfare, whether you look at the school choice, but also the amount of safety nets that was expanded. Uh, when you had Medicaid, you know, you had this postpartum um, for mothers that were on there instead of two months up to 12 months. That is an expansion of Medicaid. You have increases in cost. You have increased the number of people that other or 
um, otherwise wouldn't be on there. And I don't mean to come out and sound cruel or anything. Maybe they need to be have some sort of care. But the problem is, is Medicaid isn't the way to do it. I mean, Medicaid is already running shortages because there's no proper pricing mechanism in place. Um, and, and you have a situation where most doctors won't even accept new Medicaid patients. Why would we want to put in new mothers into a system that's going to not be good for them? That's not going to improve their care. And I think is going to be worse for not only them, but for the taxpayer in the process. And instead, we should be giving more money in people's pockets so that way they can move out of poverty and into prosperity, let people prosper, right? And so I think this is a bad situation for Texans and for the people who are going to be on this situation of growing dependency instead of self-sufficiency. And, and, and these are ways that I think we took steps that we've, we've talk, been talking about here to be more like California and not like Texas. This we need to be Texas, you know? And so I think um, we'll talk some more about that, but that's, those are my big three. We well, all have hit some really good stuff and it's hard for me to kind of place each of these issues into good or bad or ugly. So I'm going to go a little bit uh, across, you know, across the spectrum on these things. And I want to, so I want to take us back to property taxes for a little bit. Uh, and if y'all want to weigh in on that while I'm talking, it's fine. But uh so property taxes obviously aren't done, but it looks like we're we're going to get $12.3 billion in property tax relief, right? And it's going to be either an all or some mix of compression and homestead exemption, right? Uh, so, so that's where we're going to, and, you know, you have to say that $12.3 billion is a lot of money. Right. And it, it, it's a lot of money. We've never we have never seen, you know, we've only seen one time the, the legislature put more than this into property tax compression. And that was back in 2006. And that was about 14 billion dollars, a little more than 14 billion dollars. And, and so you have to say that's good. But you, you, we also have to temper that and to the fact that, well, one, they had about. $65 billion of new revenue available to them compared to what they had spent in 2021. And so out of that $60 billion, they only gave taxpayers $12 billion. They've spent about 40, 50 billion, almost no, 40 some odd billion of that. And then they're leaving about $10 billion behind just so they can have some money sitting around so they can spend later, right? And so tech, obviously taxpayers came on the short end of everything, lobbyists and big businesses and corporations and and the, the pet projects of, of legislators all came above constituents. So, so that that's trending down into the really ugly stage, I think, right? That. But but it's good that we're getting twelve billion dollars, and that's going into compression. So I I would kind of if you put the good and the ugly together, maybe we get bad uh, when it comes to property tax relief. Who knows? And the, but the other thing it's lacking also is that it, the the property tax relief is not doing anything to put us on the the path towards elimination of the school uh, property tax. I, I'm in disagreement with. Maybe all of you on this thing, but I don't think we probably ought to get rid of all property taxes because I, I don't think the lift can be accomplished well when it comes to counties and cities. But I do think all property taxes need to be drastically reduced. And there's two ways to do that. First of all, you have to just freeze the levels where they are. For instance, we've got these three and a half percent growth limits on property taxes, but 
somehow, even with those in place, property taxes went up 12% last year. And that wasn't addressed this session. And then the ultimate problem underneath property taxes is local and state spending growth, right? You know, it's it's you don't have to be a financial analyst or or a PhD or a you know an economist or a budget person to know that if the government keeps spending money, taxes aren't going down, and 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 so I think that's that was a big issue that we had to we kind of deal with that puts all this property tax stuff kind of somewhere in between the good and and, and the bad. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and lead out with uh, with the lack of of M&O elimination specifically. And, you know, we all forgive you, Bill, for being wrong on uh, property tax elimination. Uh, that's OK. We still respect you and your opinion. Uh, but, you know, despite whether we talk about property taxes as a whole and we get into the the private, you know, private property right issue, I think specifically what I'm talking about is MNO, right? That this is what I want to focus right. on because there was a big call, uh, not only like in, in the Republican platform to eliminate school MNO. We had Abbott come out and say that his goal was to eliminate school MNO taxes. And for those who are unfamiliar, this makes up about 40 to 50% of your property tax bill. This is maintenance and operation. This is a major portion. And, uh, uh, most organizations had a plan that was very similar, which would have used this massive $33 billion surplus to buy down and compress rates with the goal of incrementally phasing this out until the uh, the rate was actually zero. Most, most folks agreed that probably 10, maybe 12 years max, uh, but depending on how much we cut government, it could be as, as soon as four uh, with something like the frozen budget. And so I think it's, it's, it's bad and it's disappointing uh, that we didn't have a bigger conversation about that, that, that that Abbott wasn't held more accountable to that that statement that he made and that we had, what, six to eight bills in the House that were filed, but none of them got hearings at all. And so I was really disappointed that we we weren't having that conversation just because almost every fiscal organization and, and the other major one that's not here, TPPF, they even have a plan, right, that that would use surplus dollars to pay down and to eliminate MO over the course of time. And so I think that that I would classify as bad. And I'm probably going to get ahead of a lot of y'all just because I've been last, right, as far as uh, ugly, which this is, you know, on that borderline. I want to talk about HB5. And and just um, I think just the shift in in the fiscal mood, right? Or or how we even think about government. And and the reason I'm going to put HB five and bad and not ugly is it it really is ugly to be honest. But in the last hour, they improved it by making it only fifty percent, right? And so it's it's really really bad, but it's just like less really really bad. Uh, and so that's why I'm going to throw it in there. But I think it's it's. There's a bigger thing to talk about, right? And, and the biggest disappointment from me has been just where are the fiscal conservatives, right? Uh, where are the fiscal conservatives that were that, that popularized conservatism during the, the Tea Party movement? It seems like they've all but disappeared. We only have one or two people who are being vocal about things like uh, growing government through spending, through massive corporate welfare, through Medicaid expansion, things like occupational licensing that just a few years ago, Abbott was adamantly opposed to as a barrier to entry. And now we're passing occupational licensing like it's going out of style. And we just continue Continue to grow government, to to uh, put pick winners and losers, to grow barriers to entry, to make it harder to operate within a free market, and of course, all of this resulted in a massively bloated budget, which I'm going to classify as ugly. So I won't touch that just yet. I mean, I'm sure y'all all touch on it as well. But I think you know the biggest the biggest concern of mine is where 
fiscal conservatism has gone and maybe it's being drowned out by all of the social issues that are going on. That's that's my hope is that there was just so much going on in the culture war and in the social realm that uh, fiscal conservatism was drowned out. And maybe after this cycle, because of some of the victories we had on those social issues, that people will focus again on things like you know property tax reform by limiting the size of government, by actually reducing spending and not just being content with the status quo of slowing the growth of government, but actually getting serious about reducing the size of government, which is typically painful, especially when bureaucrats are involved. And so um, there's more. There's there there are some really ugly things, uh, and there's quite a few in the back of my mind. We'll see if y'all bring them up. Uh, but let's go ahead and spin it around on the worst of the worst, the ugly. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? I'm going to limit it to one because I imagine we're going to have a catch-all uh, for for some of the stuff. To me, because it was the thing that got me involved in politics to begin with, it was spending. Right? It was the the the, the you know the large spending increase. Obviously, for as we paid attention to uh, the budget, the one thing they're constantly bound to do, right, while they're there, is the one thing you technically elect your lawmaker to do uh, when they're down in Austin. As we watched it progress uh, through the process, the the process that's generally non-transparent and generally not really uh, built in. There's not a lot of built-in accountability to, but as we watched that process take place, right, it left the house, it started in the house of cycle, left the house at um, almost $303 billion, right, in all funds, went to the Senate, they increased it to, uh, I think it was $308 billion, right, roughly, uh, goes to a conference committee um, as it almost always does, right? Goes to a conference committee, comes out, right? They, they asked to go out of the bounds, comes out at over $321 billion in all funds. I mean, that... That alone, right, represents what is it? Uh, is over like a twenty-one percent increase, right, since appropriations last go around uh, or last uh, uh, in the in the last budget cycle that they did. Um, you know, it, it's a trend that we've highlighted certainly before uh, this legislative session. I think back to the chart, right, that we provide a lot of the folks that we speak to, Tim. Where like we just we show that gradually, really over the last twenty to almost thirty years, right, you see this kind of gradual increase and government spending um, take place under the tutelage, if you will, of Republican, right? Republican control. It happens beyond uh, what 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 is the population growth for the state, right? At least up through 2015. Um, and what you what you seemingly had this cycle, which to your point is very unfortunate because there was there weren't really anyone I can really point to that that asked questions about this is you had no real fiscal conservative stand up and say enough. Why aren't we talking about, you know, getting rid of waste and abuse in this budget? Right. We just kind of swallowed a pill at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I think uh, we're unfortunately going to wreak the lack of benefit of that um, uh, here, here over the next few years and into future generations. Yeah, Jeremy, I'm, I'm glad that you led with that because that, that's where I'm kind of building on too. Um, the the spending was just atrocious. I mean, this is this is sad to see that Texas moving in this direction, even with the special session right that's going on right now and the talk about property tax relief and everything else. It's still only going to be a small share, maybe a third of what the surplus was going in of $33 billion. So that means the they overcollected, they overtook our money, taken out of our hands, and now they're only going to give a, a third of it back, and they're going to spend two thirds of it. That that's not a good situation at all. And it goes back to my point earlier, um, where you know we're they're making Texas look more like California and DC, and not like Texas, like Florida, 
even, right? Those are the places that are making some big, bold moves forward. And so whenever I'm thinking about the ugly, I also think it starts with the largest spending increase in Texas history without the largest property tax relief in Texas history. In fact, we have no property tax relief yet, right? I think something will end up happening. Maybe it's the 12.3 billion, but it will not be the largest property tax relief in history. And we've been hitting on this throughout session. Um, and I agree with some of the comments y'all made earlier that I think, you know, with us and some others, we were helping to push them to, to the stage that there are now of more relief than what they started off with. Um, and I wish it would have been more, you know, the house's version of SB3 right at the end was probably the largest amount we had throughout all the session. And now they came back down to 12.3. Uh, they were at $12 billion before. Um, and we're going to hear a lot of talk about $17.6 billion and that that was above the $14.2 billion over the 0809 period. But you got to remember something too here is that, and I'm going to get to the spending, but the the $14.2 billion was done by raising taxes. So they came with a Supreme Court decision. They went to a special session. They had to come up with some way to reduce or compress, right? This word compression again, just reduce the tax rates from $1.50 to $1 for school district MO property taxes. And when the way they did that was they they um, expanded, they changed the franchise tax into a gross receipt style tax, the margins tax. They increased the uh, motor vehicle sales tax. And they also increased the cigarette tax. So they raised $14.2 billion to cut $14.2 billion in property taxes. And some of the work that Bill and I've done over the years have shown, and this isn't even our work, it's actually from the comptroller's numbers, that the property taxes did not go down $14.2 billion. They went down for like one year and then they were right back up to above where they were um, th that, that previous year. So th there was not a lot of property tax relief in that situation. Fortunately, there have been some changes like in 2019 with the rollback rates. And that's been somewhat helpful um, to point to, to Bill's point earlier, though, like it's still went up 13 point, I think, 3 percent for school MO when they have a quote unquote 2.5 percent rollback rate or, or freeze there because that's only on existing property. It's not on new property. And we've seen Texas growing by gangbusters. A thousand people are moving here every day on average still. You're seeing a lot of valuations, a lot of demand. Supply can't keep up. A lot of zoning restrictions and stuff like that. But there's a lot of issues going on in the housing market. And therefore, it's influencing property taxes that don't need to exist. They're immoral tax. We, have, we need the right to own our property. You know, stop renting and start owning is really what we need. And so I think this was very ugly that they didn't get anything done with property taxes at all. And even the discussion that we've had about it wasn't even half in new property tax relief of the $33 billion in surplus. And, and, that, and that's sad. I mean, this is something that really could have taken a huge chunk out of the school MO property tax if they really wanted to. They could have busted the spending limit, which we've all talked about would have been a good thing. If, I mean, it's not a good thing, but it, they should have done it if they're going to provide it with tax relief in the process um, because that doesn't set a precedent about, well, you're going to spend too much. It's about if you're going to give money back to taxpayers, then, then you should use every mechanism possible to do so. Nothing should get in your way of returning money to taxpayer in some capacity. And so I think that would have been a good thing. And the reason why that that is such a big issue is because they had to go ahead and spend so much. I mean, when you have this type of money, I remember Talmadge Heflin, one of my mentors, um, you know, talking about it's always a bad thing whenever the government has too much money because everybody has their hands out 
saying me, me, me. And we've seen that this session. It's more, it's easier whenever the legislature has no money because then they could just say no. Right. So not only do we have, did we have $33 billion in surplus, but like Bill mentioned, we had over $60 billion total in revenue. But get this, guys, we also had $27 billion expected in the rainy day fund. I mean, we're talking about tons of cash that's just sitting out there. And then they come in and then they create all these new funds. There's going to be constitutional amendments out the wazoo on the November ballot that we should all reject. We should reject every one of them because these are creating new funds, whether it be the water fund or other types of funds out there. And there may be needs for these things. But I think, first of all, they should be done by the free market. We don't need the government to be doing these things anyway. But also that when you when you constitutionally dedicate these funds, it's going to pull all this outside the constitutional spending limit, giving them even more room to spend, distort and, um, and, and, and terrify our overall economy. So I do not think that's a good, a good idea at all. And when you look at the budget numbers from what was appropriated last session of 22-23, so this is initial appropriations to initial appropriations, they went from $264.8 billion to $321.3 billion. That's a $56.5 billion increase in spending, which was 21.3%. But that's not that's not the worst of it, guys. State funds. So exclude federal funds. Just look at state funds. I went from 166 billion to 219 billion. That's a 52.8 billion dollar increase, which was a 31.7% increase in state funds. Just a massive increase overall. Um, I just can't even get my mind around that we increased the budget for just the state by a third. This is just ridiculous at the end of the day. And even if you're looking at, you know, some that kind of, you know, worked on a number of years, a conservative Texas budget, and you looked at population plus inflation, it, it's also well above that. I mean, um, even if you want to include exclude the property tax relief, right, and say, okay, that's not part of growing government. Um, you go went from 245 billion to 303 billion. That's still a 23.8 percent increase in the overall government. 25% in state funds. Uh, I'm talking too long here, so I'll shut up. But I mean, I think that. This has to be the ugly here because it's state spending that's driving all these other problems. And as Bill mentioned earlier, and Jeremy and Tim as well, the local spending has got to get under control too. I think we have to have some local spending limits put in place ASAP. I think that's one mechanism that can be used to actually reduce their own taxes. So that way we have the state buying down the school of Minot, the surpluses from all the other local governments could be buying down their own property taxes. That could be a path to elimination for all taxes if we don't want to change up any other taxes or have other types of tax reforms. So spending restraint has to be the number one thing. And unfortunately, it was the last thing which makes it the ugly in my view. Well, after listening to all you guys, I'm pretty depressed. Uh, so I'm not sure I can even go <laughs> on with this conversation, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll just kind of follow on a couple of comments with uh, from Vance and then hit my big my big point. Yeah. So Vance talked about the 31.7% increase in um, state funds because and that's compared to I don't know, what was the 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 total funds twenty something percent twenty one point three twenty one percent. So what the, they play all these games with us, right? And this is kind of leads into what I want to talk about. They play all these games. So oh, twenty only went up twenty one point seven percent. Well, that's because they're underfunding federal federal funds, right? So they're not putting they're going to spend a lot more in federal funds than they put in this budget. But they put it they put it really low so they can come back. Oh, it only went up twenty one percent. That's only ten point five percent, you know, per per year. All these kind of things. But 
what they're really focused, I mean, the the money that we can control the most is state funds, and that 31.7% is a lot of money, but it's not even the worst part of it. You know, one of the ways they do this, um, they they manipulate the the how much they tell us they're spending is through this biennium process. So we spent this much for this two-year biennium, and we spent this much for the last two-year biennium, and therefore the increase is this much. But the buy, but what they do is they spend so much last session, and they come in here this session and spend money back, and so the baseline gets increased, and so the the spending increase going forward doesn't look nearly as bad. So one way you can overcome that is look at how much they appropriated in the entire session, right? Don't worry about it whether it goes to this year. All right, in 2021 they were they came and they appropriated this much money. In 2023, they've come and appropriated this much money. What's the difference between the two sessions? Because that really gives you a pretty good idea of uh, how much government is in increasing. If you use that as a metric, the increase is 42%, almost a 50% 50 in, 50 increase, 42% increase in, in appropriations by the Texas legislature from 2021 to 2023. That, that is, as we've already heard, the largest appropriation spending increase in Texas history. It's not even close. The last time they came close to doing something like this was 2013, and uh, and that was about 25%, the session-to-session session matrix. So it's just, that's about as ugly as it gets. Um, also, also along those lines, well, let me just pull this together then. So basically why the, the really ugly part of this legislation session is you is you see government becoming more like God <clears throat> to a lot of people in the state of Texas. <clears throat> and I know this is kind of, you know, not necessarily in the fiscal realm, but I think so much of it plays off in the fiscal realm that, that it's worth talking about a little bit. You see this budget growing. Well, why is this budget growing? Well, it's because government's becoming the all everything to, to us, right? It, the um, For instance, the, the corporate welfare, right? We, we can't, doesn't seem like we can allow the Texas economy uh, to grow on its own anymore. There, there's some flaw with people and with human beings and with the free markets that we just can't allow people and to work together cooperatively in free markets and let the Texas economy grow. We have to come in here and, and manage it through from the state level. Our politicians and our bureaucrats with their regulations and with their with the money they put out there. I'm probably depressing you guys at this point. Sorry. But but I mean, it's true. I mean, we just have to have the government in charge of all these things. Um, I, I heard somebody um, laymenting the fact that. You know, Texas didn't pass a ban on prohibiting corporations from <clears throat> mandating vaccines for their employees. Well, I think that's a really bad idea for a corporation to mandate vaccines for their employees. I mean, it doesn't help anybody. It hurts a lot of people. But if we get in the mindset where we have to tell corporations and businesses what to do, right? We tell them, you, you, you know, if you can't do this with vaccines, well, then we're going to come over here and tell them what they can do on everything else as well. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more of that. And of course, that that that's in the property taxes. That's in the um, the corporate welfare and it's it's in the spending and you, and you see it 
I think a lot of what's going on here is, first of all, people are getting pretty comfortable with having government do more and more for them. That's part of it. But I think part of what's going on is we're seeing uh, Republicans in large part think that the way to stay in office is to spend money. Right. They they spend money, they give more money. And it's not just the businesses. I mean, you know, we, we've got uh, I heard uh, Senator uh, Eckhart in, in the Texas Senate today lament the fact that this five billion dollars or so didn't get past where we're going to increase the basic allotment, spend more in public schools and give teachers the money they deserve. Right. Well, you know, that's five billion dollars. You know, it's just one of the many spending sprees they came up with in the Texas legislature this session. And and so this idea that, you know, even Republicans think that if we just spend enough money and keep this constituency happy and this one over here happy, we can stay in power. It it reminds me a lot of what we saw back in some, unfortunately, in the Bush administration, Bush two, where, uh, you know, President Bush signed the campaign finance law bill that he thought was unconstitutional. But he said, I'm going to sign it. We'll let the Supreme Court figure it out because it was a popular bill, I think, is why he actually signed it. Same thing with the tariffs on coal, on steel imports. Right. You know, that wasn't because it was harming the economy. It was because the votes in West Virginia and Pennsylvania were really important to keeping Republican members in the Senate. It didn't work, but they thought it was. And so I think we're seeing a lot more about that. So that's really where my my thing is we can and we see it through the fiscal area is that government in Texas is becoming more and more like God. And, and the, 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 the positive thing is here is we've seen pushback on this before. I think this is exactly where the Tea Party is pushing back on, even if they didn't realize this kind of God connection. But just government taking from, from, from average people and giving to other people because they're going to determine how things work out. The Tea Party was about that. I think Brexit was about that. I think Trump was about that. And I think we saw a movement in this Texas legislative session where people got fed up with that, as we talked about earlier, and bringing this message that we we need to change things to the Texas legislature. So it'll be really interesting to see from my perspective, you know, how this, this session plays out going forward. We already saw a poll by Texas Scorecard about how Texan uh, Dave Phelan's poll numbers have tanked in his legislative, in his own district over there. And um, so maybe Republicans will get maybe a wake up call from the dissatisfaction of voters and we might see some changes. So. Okay. Well, y'all covered a lot. Um, So I think what I'm going to do is, is, take my fiscal hat off, right? And just kind of comment uh, in general, uh, yet again, kind of on, on trends that I'm seeing. And I think probably the most disturbing and ugly thing I saw this go around is is a lot of the controversial stuff that happened in, in the legislature this go around. And I think this is becoming more and more, uh, things are becoming more and more tribal. I think things are, um, uh, I think post COVID, when you saw the government overreach right and really go for as much as they possibly could i think this is a trend that you're seeing uh people try and replicate and just see how far they can push that and whether that's in policy whether that's in in fiscal policy or just kind of um being emboldened to have um really controversial things happen right and and just you know uh, talk about the elephant in the room right we had 
uh, a bunch of stuff happened this session, right? We had Representative Slayton, uh, which was a taxpayer champion of ours, which made a really, really horrible and immoral decision that ultimately ended in his resignation. Uh, and so I think we see, um, you know, the reaction of the legislature uh, that ultimately ended up in the most recent thing, which was the impeachment of, of Ken Paxton, right? And, you know, my intention is not to, to defend or or uh, say anything about Ken himself or the immorality of, of you know, his personal life or anything like that. But I think the, the, the vast majority of people agree that this was a politically motivated uh, push uh, by, I would argue, you know, Democrats. When you had those, those questions from Tenderhold and from Schaefer on the floor, when we found out that, you know, Ann Johnson, the 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 attorneys that were hired to help with this investigation all had connections to her, all had connections to Harris County. All, which had election problems, which Ken Paxton was being uh, em empowered to deal with, right? And so we have this very rushed impeachment that happened in less than 48 hours uh, that is now going to result in a trial in the Senate. And I think you mentioned, you know, uh, Dade Phelan. And of course, everyone, uh, if you're paying attention at all, have seen the, the videos of him where he apparently looks intoxicated. We have not had any statement from him. We don't know what was going on. But there's now multiple clips out there where he's slurring his voice. We all know those who have worked in the building that there is a very prevalent drinking and drunkenness culture in the Capitol. Many representatives drink on the floor, especially the closer they get to the end of the legislative session. And so I think that we're just seeing... Uh, uh, lawlessness accepted and and the culture of politics is becoming more emboldened to just push as far as they can and not even feel as though we have to give an explanation to folks uh, that, that they don't even think they're going to be held accountable because I think in the back of their minds, they're like, we're going to get reelected no matter what we do. And so Phelan doesn't feel as though he has to give an explanation. Even if there was a medical issue, he certainly hasn't commented on it. You know, as far as the people who are being uh, called out on, you know, the Ken Paxton thing, they put, you know, standard statements out there. Um, but I just believe that politicians, for the most part, believe that they can get away with whatever they want. And they do not believe that they're going to be unseated or face any kind of actual uh, pushback from voters. And I hope that that is proven wrong uh, this go around. But I think that's the most concerning and ugly thing to me. Um, and for time's sake, I'll kind of I'll, I'll leave it there because we've talked a lot about fiscal issues. I want to give I want to give all of y'all just a final thought, I think, especially for our um, our taxpayers, people who are wanting to get involved in the process. Why don't you give us a little 30 or 45 seconds on as we head into the interim, as we head into, you know, uh, election season. What is your advice for voters out there to get involved in the process? How can we turn some of this bad and ugly around and spin it into a positive? I suppose I'll go first and I'll use the opportunity, Tim, to plug the fiscal responsibility index, if you're OK with that. Um, you know, we're, we'll be releasing the 2023 fiscal responsibility, 2023 fiscal responsibility index here in mid-June. So I think we're aiming for June 19th um, or so. And so that'll be released and, and it's free tool for taxpayers to use. We've been doing it since 2007, a tool to which, you know, you can. Uh, by, by all intents and purposes, look at uh, both a metric, right, to gauge um, how your lawmaker votes on size and scope of government issues, uh, but also be able to look back um, historically to see both how that lawmaker or maybe the district or regions of Texas have performed and that sort of thing. Um, that'll be released mid-June. And so we implore folks to, uh, uh, to, to use that tool to uh, subscribe if they have not already subscribed so they can see that um, uh, there at our, our website, texastaxpayers.com. Yep. 
Uh, that's a great place to go. Uh, I think what I would just recommend for the audience is to educate yourself. And I think whether it be tech fiscal responsibility or elsewhere, just make sure that you understand like what's going on because they will try to pull the wool over your head and over your eyes so that you can't see the truth. And that's what we're going to keep trying to provide or and will provide over time is the truth. Here's how much they're spending. Here's where the taxes are and everything else. Um, I do that a lot on my Let People Prosper show podcast that you can check out on all the major platforms that are out there. Um, also, I have a newsletter, vanskin.substack.com. So you can check that one out as well. But I think whenever we're looking across the country and finding places that are passing strong fiscal conservative laws and are seeing the outcomes, don't judge a policy just by its intentions, but by its results, right? That's what Milton Friedman said. And I think that's so right. And that's something that we need to be looking at within the system of federalism that we have across the country to figure out what works well. Um, and unfortunately, we just did a lot of things that don't work well here in, you know, in California, New York, and Illinois that we just passed here in Texas. But we need to figure out what the right things to do. And I think that's where this audience is going to be the place to be, the place to go. And they're really going to find the next steps forward because we need those leaders. We need those good fiscal happy warrior folks to come out and really drive the drum home because that's what we really need here in Texas. I want to build off a, a comment, kind of what we've all talked about, but I think Tim specifically kind of raised the point is, uh, you know, where are all the fiscal conservatives in, in the Texas legislature? If I, there was one vote against the, the, the budget in the Senate, and I think that was from Bob Hall, wasn't it? Does it guys? No, no. It was. A I think it was. I think it was Roland Gutierrez, and it was okay. because okay. of the funding for schools. Right. So there were zero conservative votes against the um, the uh, budget in the Texas Senate, and you know, I, there are, I think fourteen or so votes against it in the House, but I think maybe only five or six of those were, were Republicans. So basically, about full conservative conservative, fiscal conservatives in the Texas legislature. And that's a really sad thing. But I, I'd, I'd say also, to some extent, that I, we could ask the same questions about voters, right? Even conservative voters, where are the fiscal conservatives? And, and, and don't get me wrong, I understand this. I mean, there's a lot of really bad things going on that, that they people want to address, right? And, you know, getting, do, doing something to get kids out of public schools and into to charter schools or into private schools to school choice or those kind of things. Outline all the the, the gay and the and the uh, basically the the communist Marxist cri uh, teachings in, in public schools and you, we need people focusing on on those kinds of things as well. But here's the bottom line though: we can pass all the school choice we want. We can pass all the property tax relief we want. We can get rid of all the, the liberal left-wing agendas uh, out of public schools we want. But if the state budget continues to increase, oppression is gonna continue to increase. And because that gives the government more money, you know, it takes money away from us. We can't do as much with our own money. And it gives them more money to regulate us and to watch us. Right. And and I know I'm probably sounding like a conspiracy theorist here, but it's true. You know, and, and so if government continues to grow, oppression is going to continue to grow and liberty is going to continue to shrink. So while we need to focus on these individual issues out there and they're important, I think we as a conservatives and Christians and, and, and those groups need to come together and really focus on reducing 
government spending. And and of course, y'all have the uh, the no growth budget that you've put out here. And and you know what? What? Why not just start there? Let's don't cut the budget. Let's just stop it from growing. Right. And I, I think that's where we need to start. And that's where I would suggest that. Um, Texans and conservatives and Christians and those liberty libertarians, those who are focused on liberty and uh, should should coalesce this interim and come back next session ready to uh, tackle the Texas budget. Good thoughts. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think my final thought is going to be to to be positive, right, to or to take the white pill. Right. I, I, I spent. Most of my 20s and early 30s, I'm about to turn 40 uh, in kind of a pessimistic mindset that, you know, bad things are happening and things are just getting worse. Uh, But I think the older I get and maybe the wiser I get, uh, there's a lot of reason for optimism. Right. And and I think that by going going out and one, communicating with folks and trying to get people involved in the process, that's that's one way. But I, I don't see the trends of society ultimately ending in the collapse of society. As a matter of fact, I actually see the opposite. I think when I look at the at the bird's eye view of what's going on in our country, when you look at kind of some of the stuff we've mentioned, like the leftist agendas and kind of the anti-family, what I see is uh, you know, the 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 Christian right, right, or conservatives, and if you hear the thunder, it's it's pouring outside of my house right now, but um that we're for the most part doubling down on family values. Most of my friends have huge, massive families. They are either private or homeschooling. They are refusing to let their kids be indoctrinated. And I just believe that ultimately over time, over the next, you know, 10 to 20 years, we will, it's a numbers game. We will eventually win when when we have, you know, one section of or, or tribalist, you know, party who is, you know, uh, sterilizing themselves, murdering their children, not reproducing, anti-family, right? And then you have another section who is uh, is promoting traditional values, who is having children, who is not allowing them to be indoctrinated, who is having five, six, seven kids, right? Give it a generation and there's going to be a vast outnumbering. And so I see a big swing right coming in the next 10 to 20 years and if you just look at history, you look at 100 years ago compared to now, we can we can talk about how bad things are getting, but they're nowhere near what they were 100 years ago. You know, we we have for the most part defeated communism. We have for the most part um improved dramatically in our society. This is the 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 least violence that has ever occurred in the history of the world. And so there's a lot to be optimistic about. And so I know there's a lot of voters out there who uh, kind of got used to things being good and they've become jaded and they're disconnecting from uh, the process. But I would just encourage those people. There's a lot to be optimistic about and we should re-engage. Don't give up. We have not lost. And I, I see good things on the horizon if we stay engaged and we continue to stand for truth and to stand for you know traditional Christian values values. I believe that good will ultimately win. And I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. And so we should encourage those folks around us in our in our circles uh, that we have not lost uh, and we will not lose ultimately. And so uh, that would be my advice for folks. So Amen. I um I appreciate y'all being on it. We 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 had a really successful uh you know season. Thank y'all for being part of the finale. Uh and we will see how this special session goes. Uh and of course we will likely see y'all in the fall sometime. Thank y'all for being with us. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Vance, Jeremy. Uh y'all have a great week. Enjoy your interim whenever that does occur after special session. Uh and we will see y'all soon. Thank you. Thank you.